Happy Wednesday, Women of Strength. We are really excited today because we have a really fun episode for you. We have done Q&As before, but this time it's a little different because instead of asking for questions from our Instagram stories, we ask in our VBAC Link Facebook community and holy cow, we have got some really amazing questions. We're really excited. Stuff we don't usually talk about or that we haven't even talked about ever on the podcast. So we are really, really excited to get going. But before we do, Megan has a review of the week that she's going to just randomly find on Apple Podcasts right now. Yeah. I don't have a review of the week pulled up. I'm just looking through. Last time I read a review of the week, we had already read it. <laughs> Yeah, that was fun. It was a good review. I mean, it's worth a a second read. Well, you read it first, but I had recorded it first. But yours episode aired first, and then mine aired second. So really copy each other, I guess. (laughs) Okay, I've got one. It's from Koala Baby 21, and it says, amazing. I am so happy I found this podcast. I had a scheduled C-section with my first daughter because she was measuring large. I wish I had found this podcast before I agreed to it. Next, baby, I'm definitely trying for a V-back. This podcast made me feel so empowered and informed. Thank you, ladies. Aww. I love that. And unfortunately, that's, you know, she's not alone out there. There's a lot of people that have C-sections for big babies. And then they come out and they're like seven, eight pounds. Not mm-hmm. so big. Do you know what I just... I just was talking with a client of mine that recently had her baby and she had gestational diabetes controlled by diet and insulin and it was her smallest baby, seven pounds, three ounces. And she was talking to me afterwards at our postpartum visit and she was like, so many times women with gestational diabetes are scared into having C-sections because of the big baby card, but what we're doing with gestational diabetes parents is we're starving them. We're like restricting their calorie intake, restricting all of the foods that they've eaten before. And so they don't get as much carbs and sugar, which is generally a good thing, right? But like if you drastically change your diet during pregnancy, your body's not going to be accustomed to that decreased intake amount so drastically. And your babies might end up being smaller, Mm. Um, because of the diet restrictions. Rye, I was talking to her and she was talking with her midwife like that um, about that. And sometimes even gestational diabetes parents will have IUGR babies that are too small. And so then they'll, so then they'll induce them because they think their babies are too small or do a C-section because their babies are too small. So we're telling, we're scaring these parents into a diet by telling them baby's going to be too big. And then when their baby's too small, we're scaring them because uh, they have a small baby, yeah. which isn't thriving. Crazy. So, so crazy. Anyways, we're going to get to your questions right after the intro. You are tuned in to the VBAC Link Podcast with Julie Frankham and Megan Heaton, VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. Birth workers, listen up. 
Do you want to increase your knowledge of birth after cesarean? We created our advanced VBAC doula certification program just for you. It is the most comprehensive VBAC doula training in the world, perfectly packaged in an online self-paced video course. This course is designed for birth workers who want to take their VBAC education to the next level so you can support parents who have had a cesarean in the most effective ways. We have created a complete system, a step-by-step roadmap that shows exactly what you need to know in order to support parents birthing after cesarean. Head on over to thevbacklink.com to find out more information and sign up today. That's thevbacklink.com. See you there. All right, let's just jump right in. Megan, do you want to take the first question? We're just going to go through on our community and answer them. We're each just going to pick some because there's so many. We wish we could get to them all, but we're going to try and keep our answers as short and concise as possible so we can get to as many as we can, but no promises because you know how we are. We can do another one and we're back to this list too. So yeah, that would be the first question is from Holly, and she all about Dr. Fer, Christopher, uh, Dr. Dr. Christopher. <laughs> Dr. Christopher's birth prep, and I feel like I want to answer this question. I want this because it's something I did personally, so um, did you do it, Julie? Did you know about Dr. I did not, but I saw this question. It was the very first one we got, and I'm like, Megan, yeah, be perfect for this question. <laughs> I know you like know. that stuff a lot. I do. Well, I did. I really enjoyed it. And so I'm going to tell you a couple of my reasons why. And I always encourage everyone to do their own research, ask their provider if they're, if they're, you know, questioning um, my particular provider, she agreed and said that that was great. And I know that there's another, it's called like labor way or something like that. And apparently it has like similar ingredients. But anyway, so Dr. Christopher's birth prep. So that is not a book or a course or anything like that. It's actually an herbal supplement. The supplement is to be started at 34 weeks and you take it, the suggested dose until you have your baby. The one of the reasons why, oh, I have multiple reasons, but one of the main reasons why I decided to take it is because it helps with priming the cervix. This is not like an inducer or anything. It just kind of helps the cervix, you know, create like a buttery soft cervix, which is what we all want when we're having a baby. And so um, with my history, I didn't have a super, I mean, it was like 70 to 80%. So it wasn't like bad, but I wanted to see if I could do anything to help that. And then another reason why it also helps create elasticity in the perineal area. And so for me, I was all about not tearing or doing all the things I could to avoid tearing. And so that was one of the the awesome things. So one of the cons of Dr. Bertha is that it can bring on Braxton Hicks. And for me, that wasn't really a con. I discovered pregnancy and I had never experienced a Braxton Hicks. And I always wanted to experience Braxton Hicks because I had read and heard how normal that is, right? And it's it's a good thing for your uterus to kind of prime itself. And so I was curious if I'd actually get them. And I did. I actually started getting them just before I started taking them. But I noticed that they increased a little bit, but nothing too bad. But they can, if someone has, or they're more prone to like really hard Braxton Hicks, it can make it worse. And so I always tell my clients, you know, make sure to do your research, ask your provider if you need to. And if it gets too much, don't hesitate to stop taking it or cut back the dose. That is one of 
things. Those are some of the things that turned me on to birth prep. Now, a lot of people worry because it has black and blue cohosh in it. And black and blue cohosh is controversial with, you know, TOLAC. But what I had found in my own research and talking with providers, and I've, I've spoken to many providers at this point about it, is the black and blue cohosh is just so low. Like there's like really nothing um, hardly in there that it wasn't concerning like it would be to take, like just take your own dosage of black and blue hosh. Does that make sense? Yeah, actually? it's I, like a therapeutic dose instead of like a- An actual a, dose. Like an right. actual major yeah. aggressive dose. Yes. But yeah, that was, yeah, that's that's the same thing that I've heard. And make sure you take it only as, as prescribed, directed. like on the bottle. Like yes. on the bottle, it gives you instructions and yes. make sure you follow those just to stay as safe as right. possible. Right. And some people are like, oh, like I found out about it really late. I'm 38 weeks. I'm four weeks behind. Should I just start on the 38-week dose? No, you shouldn't start on the 38-week dose. Unfortunately, you really need to wean your body into it. Not unfortunately, but like, unfortunately you found it late. That's okay. But like, don't just throw that into your body because that's like giving your body like, you know, a double whammy and it needs to lead into it. Just like not get up and just like run a marathon, like overnight. Like you want to train into that. You want to train, you know, help introduce your body into this. And I believe the current, the current, if I could say the word, dosage is 34 weeks you take one 35 weeks you take two and this is a day 33 or 34 5 6 36 weeks you take three and from there on out you take three a day when I was doing it I took through four I can't remember but I started at 35 weeks and so I was a week behind but I started the same way I started one pill two pills three pills just like that so yeah so that's a little bit more about birth prep should we go on to the next question yeah so Amy Shoemaker asks, how do I break up with my OB? And I love that question, but it also makes me a little bit sad. Let me tell you why. Because before it wouldn't have normally made me sad, but now that we're dealing with coronavirus and birthing parents are being forced into almost impossible situations, people are, are leaving the hospital and going to home or birth center births. And I'm not sure if that's what Amy's trying to do. Maybe she's just going to another OB. But I just had a client actually yesterday too switch, text me. She is 35 and a half weeks pregnant and she switched from a hospital birth to a home birth with a really good midwife, first time mom. And she is going to call, she's going to call the office and um, tell them that they're leaving. But here's the thing you don't have to break up with your OB. I mean, you can tell them if you want that you're, that you're switching to another provider that you feel better meet your needs, or you can just call the office, but your new provider is going to be able to request your medical records from your current provider. They just fax them over. Like you don't even have to have a phone call or a conversation or anything you can just leave and your new provider can pick up. But like, if you want to talk to them and let them know, I recommend that you do, especially if it's a reason for they're not supportive of VBAC. They're not, you know, we have had parents walk out of birth rooms here because their doulas aren't allowed in the room with them. 
when you let them know why you're leaving, that puts a little bit of pressure on them, if you will, to change how they do things. And, you know, birth is a business. Let's just be real. Like birth is a business. And when the consumers want something different, when enough of them speak up for it, then that's when the change really happens because these providers are going to their, I don't even know what OB managers, like who manages the OBs? I don't know. Their hospital, it gets to their hospital administrators and then change happens, right? And so if you want to have that conversation and let them know why you're leaving, you can, but you don't have to. You don't have to talk to them at all. You don't ever have to see them again. And I think that's just like the short answer, right? Right. Yeah. And, you know, one of the converse, uh, part of the conversation uh, with my client is she's not due until she's got like almost a month left. And one of the com- like parts of the conversation and she brought this up was she already told me <laughs> the provider already told her that she's not even going to be on call in May and she doesn't come to the birth unless she's on call. And wow. so she's setting up this induction for her to just come in and she's not even the provider. And so I kind of pointed that out. I'm like, well, she, and she said, she said something for some reason, something's not sitting well. And I said, well, what I just heard from you is something's not sitting well. And then the next sentence you said, she already told me she's not going to be working in May. I said, so what, what, what is it that's making you feel like you have to be with her when she's not even going to deliver your baby like or catch your baby and she was like huh and I said I want you to tune into your intuition there's something that telling you something's telling you it's, it's not right and that you're not comfortable with it and you know there's a reason you just kind of figure that out but I will say from my own experience I chose not to quote-unquote break up with my OB with my second baby because I felt some sort of I don't even know. Um, what's the word? What's the word, Julie? Loyalty? Loyalty. Yeah. Like, yeah, I felt loyalty, like loyal to him or something. Like he had seen me most of my pregnancy. So why would I leave him? Like how rude of me. But at the same time, even though I don't regret my daughter's birth, like I'm grateful for her and that I'm, that I had a healing cesarean experience. I am pretty positive and I can't like give a percentage, but I'm just going to say it's high that I would not have had a second cesarean if I would have followed my gut and changed. And um, I learned, I learned how little I meant to him when I went after my second baby to go get my records because I didn't only want my medical, my op reports, I wanted my prenatal records. And so I had to go to the actual office to get that. And when I did that, like, well, where are you going? And I said, I want to be back next time. And he looked at me straight in my eyes and said, good luck. No one's going to want you out there. Mm. And that That still makes me just the same amount of angry as it does the first time I heard it. Oh yeah. Like literally like when he said that to me, I left and I started bawling and I was pissed. And I was like, I stayed with him because I was loyal to him. And I felt like I owed him something. I don't even know what the heck I owed him. And look how little I meant to him. Like how little did I mean to him? Yeah. You know what I mean? And so um, I usually tell people, sorry if you can hear my garbage man in the background. <laughs> I usually tell people, if you're feeling that you need to switch providers, there's something that stemmed that feeling. And you need to mm-hmm. tune into it, dig deep, and don't worry about anyone else's feelings. 
worry about what's best for you and your baby and your family because yep. that's what's best ultimately. And Joe Schmo, Dr. Joe Schmo over here or Sally Jane, like, do they care about you? Yeah, I think providers generally, like, they have general care, but at the same time, they're, it's not going to impact them the way it's going to impact you. So, sorry, I know we had a yep. lot of questions, and I know you already talked about that a lot, but, like, I feel very passionate about it because I did not change, and I shouldn't no, change. I agree. I agree 100%. All right. I think it's your turn to answer uh, your question. Okay. Uh, let's see. I'm just scrolling. Guys, there's seriously... So Some many. Really good okay, I want to ask two questions in one. Is that okay? Um, yeah, as long as it's not the one that I want to answer next. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's Aaron, Aaron and Jolene. So Aaron asked, how do you prevent your baby from being OP position? Tips on turning during labor. Actually, there was another one that said, oh, I'm so sorry, hun. If, um, I don't know where your thing is, but I saw it saying like, if you have an OP baby, are you just screwed? Mm -hmm. And then Jolene says, so I'm answering three in one. Look at me go. Um, talk to us about the rebozo and the use of benefits. So first of all, I want to talk about. And also signs uh, that the baby might be posterior. Signs. That was another one. Yes. Look at us go. Julie, we're answering so many questions. I love this. And they're all different questions, but they all kind of relate. And so, okay. One, if you have an OP baby, are you screwed? No. No, you are not. What are the signs? Is that what you said, Julie, the signs that a baby is OP? Yeah. So there's a couple signs. Um, one of the signs that I look out for is coupling, a coupling contraction pattern. A coupling contraction pattern looks like two contractions kind of close together. And sometimes they're kind of like easier contractions. And then there's like a break. And then there's like one strong, hard one. Yeah, an irregular contraction even, pattern. An irregular contraction pattern where, where like they kind of like come. The they like come in two, and then there's a big break, and then there's another one. Or mm -hmm. they're like all over the place. Or they're really, really strong, like super strong, but little progress mm -hmm. is being made. Um, or, of course, back labor. But we know, hey, sorry, dog. No, go. Um, we know that back labor does not only mean posterior, but it's a good sign that a baby could be posterior. It also is a sign that there's balance that's off. Yep. Or something's um, misaligned so somewhere. Something's misaligned somewhere. Um, Pace has oh strong opinions about Ju this. He, he is like, listen, okay, I'm going to go let him out. Julie, will you talk about Rebozo? Listen to him. Yeah, <laughs> okay, I'll yeah be right back. for sure. All right, Rebozo. Rebozo is pretty cool. For those that don't know what it is, Rebozo is just a really, really long scarf. It's traditionally used in Mexican cultures. And there's a lot of really cool tools that you can use with the Rebozo or techniques you can do to help encourage baby to get in an optimal position, both when you're still pregnant and when you're in labor. Um, one of those things is called sifting, where you kind of like just like wrap the Rebozo under the belly and someone stands above you and like pulls either side like opposite of each other so like a little shake of the belly nice and gently it helps kind of like loosen babies loosen baby up to get into a better position and then um, one of our favorites is called shaking the apple tree yes. <laughs> this is so funny because it always gets a laugh out of everybody in the room and guess what laughing releases oxytocin which is also necessary for um, labor progression so you literally just wrap the rebozo around the mom's bum 
just like a little envelope holding her bum and you just shake it like you're driving a motorcycle like if you imagine your hands like on a motorcycle and how they like kind of shake you just like shake it like that back and forth go ahead say it's a really good tricep workout for those partners just after if you're like, she's working hard. I wish I could work as hard as her. I wish I could take it from her. Shake apples, your triceps. You won't be near as yep. hard. Shake the apples. You'll get a really nice tricep burn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got to switch off with with um, those birth partners sometimes. And yes. plus, every time I do that, I'm like, you know, I need to start lifting weights again. No, <laughs> <laughs> this is a, this is um, a segue um, into, a, I don't even know if it's an answer, but our question, but talking about the importance importance of doulas is like like julia said like wait the importance of what of doulas oh yeah yeah like she has to switch off too like and these partners if they don't have a doula like they're really getting a workout and and they get tired um and it might not be as effective and so it's nice to be able to switch off them with a doula or another birth support yeah but yeah i love i love apples i know you do it's i i love it too it's one of my favorites for sure well, it works really, really well because what it's doing is it's jiggling that pelvis to kind of help baby get its head into a good spot, but also to like kind of release baby a little bit so that baby can move around into a good spot. So that was kind of a good segue into my um, several questions that I'm going to answer. We have a lot of people asking about like dilation and di- descent and stalled labor, and I feel like I can answer all of those into one. So this is the thing. Just because you're at a 10 doesn't mean you're ready to push. Yes. So let's let's talk about that in just a minute. But before I do that, I want to talk about like getting to a 10. So sometimes labor progresses slowly and that is okay. And that is not necessarily a sign of anything abnormal. But when, like we just talked about, right, with the rebozo, when contractions are coupling, they're not strong or, they're, or they ebb and flow. Like they get super strong and then they're not very strong for a little while. And then they get super strong and then you go 12 minutes between your contraction. Those are all signs of a positional issue like we just talked about. And so getting someone knowledgeable in correcting that position is good or if you're in an epidural, even just lying from side to side, uh, like every 30 minutes with a peanut ball, like between your legs is a great way to like help encourage internal rotation of the baby. But that would be the only time that I would interrupt a slower labor is if their contraction pattern is irregular or if they're feeling pain in like one specific part or if they're the contractions are more intense in one specific part of the pelvis or the belly, specifically back labor. That's a sign of a posterior baby, which we just talked about too. So, and can I just like say something really, really loud? Like I want to hear, I want everybody in the whole entire world to hear this because I recently witnessed this at a birth. There was a provider there that was very hands-on, but it wasn't oh my gosh, I hate to be like critical of these people, but they were doing things in early labor when baby was in the inlet of the pelvis that should not have been done until the baby was at the outlet. And this is what it was. Every time the mom had a contraction, because 
labor was slow and progressions were coupling or contractions were coupling. And like I said, they're going stronger and, and not as strong and spacing out. And there's just like no regular pattern. In fact, that, that particular parent never really had a regular contraction pattern until the baby was born. And it was a very rough birth at the end, but the provider was having the mother do squats and while she was squatting, doing abdominal lifts with the belly. Now, abdominal lifts are a great way to get baby engaged, but squatting when baby is above the mid pelvis is a really bad idea because it closes the pelvic inlet when you squat and opens the outlet. So which is why squatting is great for pushing. It's great to help baby descend past the pubic bone once they get past the mid pelvis into plus one, plus three station, but it's not good for early labor and getting baby engaged. And what ended up happening is this baby was asynclitic, which if they would have <laughs> just, there's so many thoughts. I still have to process this birth, obviously. I, am, I was a sibling doula, so I wasn't there to support the mom. I was supporting the parent or the kids supporting the mom. So I didn't feel like, like I couldn't really get in there to do any work, but the baby's head was asynclitic and molded so hard on one like side and back of the head that all I could think about was that provider doing those abdominal lifts while mother was squatting while baby was still a minus two station kind of forced that baby's head into an awkward position where it, where it got, it was like really bad molding and it hung around for, for a while. Like it, it's still days there. You could still see it after some day, a few days and normally molding corrects pretty quickly. So I want to say that like, don't squat in the beginning of labor. Don't just don't because it's bad. It closes your pelvic out inlet. And so let's also, so as long as labor is slow and progression is happening and if progression is slow, that is perfectly normal. Baby descends um, and its head rotates and flexes as it goes through the pelvis. And as long as everything is looking great, then there's no need to rush anything. But when you're having problems, like I said, like we talked about um, with the irregular contractions and any like strong back pain or anything like that, then it might be a sign that you need to do some positional work during labor. So let's talk about the point where you get to 10 centimeters and it doesn't mean you're ready to push. So I'm going to try and describe this in a great way because I'm really like need a visual for this, I feel like. But um, when we were at the evidence-based birth conference with in Kentucky, Adriana Lozada of the Birthful podcast, she's amazing, by the way, because she has a great position, uh, a great episode about dilation and descent. and. Yeah. She really does. But what we were watching her present and she was a keynote speaker and like the things that she said just really blew my mind. So if you think of, I mean, I think everybody's seen the video going around like on social media of the balloon and the ping pong ball, right? Like where the ping pong balls in the blown up balloon and like you squish the balloon and the ping pong ball like slowly comes down like mm -hmm. the narrow part of the balloon. Well, your uterus is very similar to that. That's why they use it to demonstrate co what contractions do, right? But once you're 10 centimeters, you're not measuring necessarily how far apart the cervix is when measuring dilation. 
you're measuring how much of the baby's head you can feel. Like that's really what it is, right? Let's see, let's just, I can feel this much of baby's head. But then once the cervix opens and you can feel all of the baby's head, like the 10 centimeters of the baby's head, that cervix, if you can imagine like the, your forehead, like that cervix is still like just around baby's forehead probably. And the cervix has to come all the way down past the baby's head as it pushes through like that little ping pong ball, slowly pushing down through that narrow part of the balloon. And sometimes that takes a little bit longer to do. And when we have providers forcing women to start pushing just because they're complete, that cervix might still be tight around the baby's head. And so resting and descending, we love that phrase, rest and descend, um, until baby or until the mother's body is guiding them or telling them to push or starts pushing on its own is really the best way in order to help that baby descend, progress, and be pushed through. Because you're going to have ineffective pushing if your baby's not ready to come through and that cervix is still kind of hanging out there and it's going to wear you out. It's going to wear your baby out. It's going to wear your uterus out, which uh, as we know, worn out baby mom and uterus is are all not very good things. And so I really, really love Adriana's tip about how to get people to let you wait once you got to 10 centimeters. Um, she did this cute little skit and oh my gosh, I, I wish I could find it on video somewhere. And I, I maybe we'll reach out to her and ask her if we can recreate, recreate it, her little skit. But ask to go to the bathroom. Ask to go pee. Don't say, I want to go poop. I need to go potty. Say, I need to go pee. Because if you say you need to go poop, they're going to think you need to push and they don't want to try the baby. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you say you need to go pee, that makes sense because a, a full bladder can prevent baby from descending. So empty your bladder regularly. And then anytime you want to delay something, ask to go pee. Because the funny thing about hospitals is they have this like false sense of privacy, right? So your room has a door on it, but people knock on the door and then immediately open it and they come into your room. And they even have that like curtain there to like provide that second layer of false security. But no, nobody stands at the curtain. Nobody waits to open the door. They knock, they open the door, they push back the curtain and voila, they're in your room. But a funny thing happens when you're behind the bathroom door. When you're behind the bathroom door... People knock and wait. They don't automatically open the door. So go pee. Plus, the toilet is also known as the dilation station. So sitting on the toilet, especially backwards, which is kind of hard in some hospitals because they have like that weird pipe and the flusher thing, but um, sitting on it backwards or even just forwards will help your body progress that baby down. Plus, an empty bladder helps the baby descend. What would you add, Megan? Did I, did that, did I explain that well yeah. enough? It's great. Yep. I don't okay. feel like we need to, I need to add anything. Yeah. Okay, cool. But yes, patience, patience, patience. Unless you're seeing something irregular, in which case, positional work, rebozo, things like that. And don't squat before baby's at your mid pelvis, which is zero station or below. Well, and uh, what you want to do, I guess I'm going to add a little bit in the beginning, yeah. not in the inlet. So, mm -hmm. like, you know, like knees open, stuff like that. But, like, don't do anything that's uncomfortable. Like listen to your body. Like if it's something that your your body is not liking, it's probably not a great spot to be. Yep. You know? Yeah. Okay. Let's see. I just totally lost it here because I was just like listening. 
so much to you. And then, <laughs> well, it was just oh, so it. strange. I'm like, these squats are not working this baby. And then the, the other provider was like, I'm not feeling any suture lines on the baby's head. And I'm like, it's because the baby's asynclitic. Like I need to yeah. get on this mother. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's see. How true is it? This is from Esther. She says, how true is it? If I can't get my records from Puerto Rico, from my previous C-section that was 11 years ago, I can't be back. This is what my health provider is telling me. I have only one daughter. She's 11 years old and now I'm pregnant. Well, just because you, wait. So just because you don't have your op reports means their, their provider is not willing to let you TOLAC. So this is what they think, because if you can't verify what type of incision she has, she mm-hmm. might have a classical or a special mm-hmm. scar. It's, un- and, well, it's you unknown. Know what? Yeah. And even ACOG says that an unknown incision type is not a reason to deny a TOLAC in their bull- ACOG Bulletin 184, because it's most likely a low transverse incision. Yeah, that's a hard one because, I mean, I see it from a provider, like they're nervous. They don't know your history. They don't know what happened, etc. But at the same time, I feel like no one should be denied something that they mm-hmm. desire um, when it comes to birthing and stuff like that. So it may come down to, you know, um, seeking providers who may be more open to that and seeing what you can do. I mean, 11 years, a lot of reports aren't probably there anymore. Like, Mm-hmm. I don't even know how long medical seven. records. Yes. They're legally yeah, required to keep so. them for seven years. Sometimes they keep them legally for required. Not, but and in Costa Rica, I have I just have no Puerto idea. Rico. So, oh, pro- Puerto Rico. I'm thinking Costa Rica. Uh, apparently, I want to go to Costa Rica. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would. I would search out and interview people. And if you know the reason why you had your cesarean, I would talk. I would talk to them about that and explain why things happen. You know the way they did. Okay, so how are uterine scars monitored during pregnancy? This is from Ellen. What should we know about this? I just, that question, like, it bugs me that people are even having to worry about this. Uterine scars, the short answer is there's no effective way to measure the thickness of a scar, and there is no indication to show whether or not a thick or thinner scar makes an impact on your chances of having a successful VBAC or increasing your risk of uterine rupture. And that's the biggest thing providers are really looking at is whether or not your risk of rupture is increased. And so first of all, ultrasounds can't pick up scar tissue. They can just like see, like they know it's a scar area because of like the little thin line of separation. But there's no way to measure how thick a scar really is unless you are actively like in the uterus looking at it, measuring it, you know, and obviously you would need a surgery to tell that. And so if your provider is telling you um, that you need to have your scar measured or that your scar is too thin in order to attempt a trial of labor after cesarean, then that might be a conversation that you need to have about them because have with them because they're not using evidence-based information and that could be a red flag that your provider is not very VBAC supportive. So I hope that that answers that question and let's move on to the next one. So okay we get this question quite a bit. Are you always considered a VBAC even after having your first VBAC? And the answer is yes. 
once you've had a cesarean, you will always be a TOLAC or, you know, trial of labor after cesarean or a VBAC. And so now you're always going to have that cesarean scar. It's not going to go away. But after you have your first successful VBAC, your chances of having another vaginal birth go up and you're probably going to have a lot easier time finding a provider to support you now that you have a proven cervix or proven pelvis. I'm using like air quotes right now, right? And so even the VBAC calculators that are out there, which we don't necessarily love, increase your chances of having a successful VBAC after you have already had a previous vaginal birth, whether it's before or after your cesarean. And so that is the answer for that question. Okay. Do you want to pick a next question, Megan? Uh, I want to talk about Tiffany's question. It says, best ways to naturally induce labor. It says, can you induce labor if your body and baby aren't ready? If not, why do people suggest not doing certain things if baby won't come until they're ready? Also wondering if you can make, if you can be at 10 centimeters and pushing, but, not, but making no progress. So I love that question. That's a really good question. And it should make you think a little bit because it, because it's making us think a little bit, I, to be honest. So first of all, if your body and baby aren't ready, then natural induction methods just aren't going to be successful, most likely. So the gentler ways of things that you can do to help like get your body ready and prepared, like eating dates, taking Dr. Christopher's birth prep, having sex is a great way for uh, great semen is great prostaglandin for your cervix, red raspberry leaf tea. All of those things are like helping to like ripen your uterus, soften it and tone. I'm sorry, your cervix, ripen and soften your cervix and tone your uterus, which just essentially makes them more efficient and more effective to do the job when it's time to do the job. Now, the short answer is no, you can't induce labor on your own when your body's not ready but there are things that you can do to encourage it and kind of nudge it in that direction if it is ready. So we would always say avoid artificial prostaglandins, which include evening primrose oil, both orally and vaginally. That's, um, it's linked to postpartum hemorrhage and premature rupture of membranes. There's a lot of controversy about that. So some people might not agree with me and that's okay. That's just our stance based on the evidence that we have found. And her next part of her question is, why do people suggest not doing certain things if baby won't come until it's ready? Well, there are certain things that if you do them, like black and blue cohosh, like we talked about earlier, or evening primrose oil, or other, other more aggressive induction things like castor oil, that increase your chances of your water breaking it increases your chances of overworking your uterus and it increases your chances of having really, really, really long labor or long early labor because your body's trying to catch up and get ready when it wasn't ready before. And a tired baby and a tired mom and a tired uterus are not very good things to have when you're in labor and trying to get a baby out, especially after a VBAC. And a hyperstimulated uterus can actually increase your chances of having a uterine rupture. So that's why people don't want you to do certain things until like you're close to or even or probably most likely past your due date because we don't want to overwork your body before it's ready to go into labor on its own. 
So I hope that answers the question. Can you be 10 centimeters and pushing but make no progress? Yes, you absolutely can. Kind of referring back to what we talked about earlier with the, um, you know, just waiting, resting and descending for that cervix to finish pulling over the baby's head. And sometimes positional issue like posterior or asynclitic babies, um, if they're still in that position while you're pushing, it's going to be harder for them to push and you're going to, it's going to likely take longer and you're going to have a while to work harder to get that baby to descend and push through the pelvis. I actually had a client just last fall, her first baby, she got 10 centimeters and was pushing and baby was posterior and she pushed for two hours. Baby wasn't descending. So they had to do a C-section. Second baby, she was at a seven for a while. And then we did Walters and baby <laughs> engaged and was born within, I think like two hours. So, I mean, just knowing and being aware of what a normal labor pattern looks like and what are indications of a baby being in a poor position, which we talked about earlier, are good, helpful things that you can use. And then always just rest and descend. You don't need to push unless your body's telling you to push. If your doctors are at telling you to push, ask to go pee or ask for a 10-minute break. Like if you have an epidural, just say, can I just rest for a little bit before pushing? Just ask for a little bit of a break because the longer you wait until your body is naturally ready to do that, the more likely you're going to be successful um, at pushing that baby out. So I, I was getting on a soapbox a little bit because I was like, I, I just want to ask the question to you guys. I want to know why, why induce? Why are you trying to self-induce? What, what is that reason? And I don't mean that like super rude. Like, it kind of sounds by but like, are we inducing, are we trying to self-induce because we have pressure from providers to induce or to have babies before certain dates? Are we just uncomfortable? Um, you know, like I'll just think about it. Like why, why do we need to pressure our bodies and, and getting to get these babies out? And I don't know if Julie, I, cause I kind of cut out. I didn't know if you answered the question of, can I self-induce if my body and baby are not ready? I typically don't see a body respond yep. if, if that is, and I don't know if you talked about prodromal labor, but mm-hmm. I find, I find parents getting more exhausted in the end than they would be if they just like waited a little longer because it causes causes prodromal labor and then going through the night for three four nights and then labor finally begins. Yep. So ask yourself why. Like, is it is it is it needed? Is it needed? Like, I know that like being pregnant for two three four five even two more weeks sounds awful sometimes. But look at how short it is. You know what I mean? Like, it's very short, and you just kind of power through it. Yep. So. Absolutely. Perfect. Okay, um, why don't you pick another question since I've been talking for a while? Oh, okay. Okay, let's see. Why doesn't it happen? So someone, Sarah says, how about dilation? Why doesn't it happen and what can we do about it? Dilation does happen. It's just a matter of letting it happen. Does that make sense? Like, mm-hmm. it does happen. But however, there are some times that we don't know why and a lot of times it's because the body wasn't ready and it was not ready to respond to what it's been given and it doesn't dilate or we've got a baby in a poor position yep and the cervix isn't being pressed on well enough and and then it doesn't happen or there's something internally so we are very powerful people we are like when we say women of strength we mean it you and guys, when we, we say we we mean you yeah. I mean, and us, I guess, but like Women, everybody, yeah, we're talking to yeah. you listening right but now. We're talking to you listening. Like 
we are very powerful. Like the body is so incredible and our mind is also very powerful. And so if we are in a place of trauma, a place of fear, a place of doubt, if we are uncomfortable because of the situation we are in or the place we are in, those things literally can affect your dilation. I can't remember who it was, but we had someone on the podcast and this goes in for induction um, or going into labor too. We had someone where she was getting so much pressure to have this baby, so much pressure to have this baby. And then finally she stood for herself. She's like, I am not going to be induced. And she walked out to the parking lot and guess what happened? Boom. Started contraction. That was Kelsey from Michigan. It was Kelsey? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and it was really? scheduled her C-section. Was, like That's what it was. Yeah. It was an induction. It was a scheduled C-section. Like our minds are powerful. And so if we can just kind of let them go and let like like recognize figure out what's going on and address it that can also help so be in tune and that if you're feeling scared try to voice that to your team i am feeling uncomfortable right now this makes me feel uncomfortable or that what that person just said it triggered me and i'm feeling nervous you know what i mean then yeah kick everyone out of the room and so you don't be scared of partner can just get centered and grounded and connected and ready to move forward because that's really, really important. Um, most people know, don't know that they can just kick people out. And if people aren't budging, then just ask to pray. I don't care if you don't even believe in God. I don't care if you worship Satan, like whatever you worship or whatever you believe in, or if you don't believe in anything, ask to pray because prayer has this reverence about it that everyone's like, okay, we'll give you a minute to pray and be alone. And so ask to pray. And so you guys can just like reset and regroup and get your minds right. Yeah. Um, okay. Do we have time for one or two more questions, Julie? You want to do a couple more or? Well, let's do two more. One's a question and one's a comment. So I'll do the question first, which is a cervical lip question. Oh, yes. I so, saw that. yes. Asks, cervical lip. What is it? Why is it? And how do you not get it? <laughs> Nuchal cords and short cords. <laughs> um, is vaginal birth possible with both nuchal cord and a short cord? So first of all, I'll talk about cervical lips. Cervical lips, and this is me just talking on my experience. I don't have any like data or science to back this up. But in most of the instances I've seen in cervical lips, it has to do with the baby coming down the baby's head coming down in a poor position to where it's pushing more on one side of the cervix than the other. And when you do positional work, the cervical lip resolves and baby's born, no problem. But a lot, it's really, really hard to know because who knows, maybe everybody has a cervical lip at some point in their labor, but it's just a matter of if you get checked when you have the cervical lip or not. And so cervical lips are your, like I said, in my experience, and Megan, I want you to um, pitch in here too in a minute, positional or they just resolve on their own when you, let, when you let your body continue to work and do its own thing and birth in whatever position that is comfortable for you because also lying on one side for too long could cause a cervical lip, which again could be tied back to position of mom or baby. So that's my, so like, Cervical lip is just when there's like a little bit of your cervix left over. So you're like 10, you're like 10 centimeters dilated, 
but like part of your cervix is only nine centimeters dilated or nine and a half. So there's just like this little lip of cervix hanging right over top of baby's head at some point of the cervix. And we already talked about why. And then how do you not get that? Honestly, aside from making sure that you're, you're moving into what's comfortable for you during labor and making sure your good baby's in a good position, I think you just kind of have to wing it and, and let your body do its thing. Just trust that body to, to work through it. I mean, what would you add for that? Yeah, um, cervical lips are tricky because it's like we're so close, right? There's just this lip. And a lot of providers are like, I'll just push it out of the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't love it. I don't love seeing that happen. And we learned um, in the evidence-based birth conference that that's not usually ideal. Um, and it's mm-hmm. best to kind of let it go. But definitely positional change positional, if I could just think and speak today, positional change mm-hmm. is going to be great and letting the time, like Julie said, like just giving it time, like it will likely go away. If it does go away with a provider's help, great, but you could just always just wait and, you know, really peanut ball. Oh my goodness. Exaggerated Sims peanut ball on the side that you're your limb, your limb, your lip is, um, it can really help reduce that and complete that cervix. Absolutely. Um, nuchal cords and short cords, is vaginal birth possible with both? Short answer is yes. I mean, nuchal cords happen all the time. That's when the cord is around the baby's neck. I, would, I don't remember the exact statistic, but I'm, but something in my head is saying one in three babies are born with a cord around their neck. Does that sound right to you? I mean, I see it a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's not uncommon. Um, And short cords, short cord can make it harder for baby to descend, especially if it's like wrapped up and entangled in its cord. Now cord entanglement is a different thing, like where the cord's wrapped around the whole body and it's really not letting baby descend without severe heart cells. And that's, I mean, that'll be the, that would be the reason they tell you you need a C-section is because of the heart cells. And then once they're in the uterus, then they'll be like, wow, this baby's really tangled up. But man, I had a first time mom where baby's head, this was a vaginal birth, baby's cord was wrapped around the neck twice, the shoulder once, and then the torso twice. That cord was like long. It was, I swear it was like six feet long and it was a vaginal birth. And so I think it's really hard to say yes or no, like whether a nuchal cord or a short cord is going to prevent a vaginal birth. You can't really know until, until you're there. But most of the time, most of the time it's going to be okay and baby's going to be fine and it's not an issue. Sometimes it causes issues, but it's rare. There yeah. Like fetal, <laughs> like fetal heart tone, like fetal heart your meaning yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think too, like a lot of times it's like movement or things like that, but cords being wrapped around baby's necks, like, like she said, like we see it all the time, like we really do. And so, yeah, like I know someone that scheduled a C-section because the provider's like, oh, I can tell your baby's cords wrapped around their neck in the ultrasound, uh, you better schedule a C-section. And I was like, that's actually really common. I know. It's common that they do that, but it's not evidence-based. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's do um, this one thought from Sina. Um, I, I really know, I just like that. I just bring it, yeah. I think it's important to bring it up and talk about it just for a little bit. She says, no question, it's just a very, very important comment to convey. Nobody is a failure and nobody's body failed them if the VBAC doesn't happen. 
we must dispel that thought and idea. Now, I know that we use the word like success, like a successful VBAT or successful whatever. We do use those in our courses, on the podcast, things like that. And we try to stay away from it as much as we can. But sometimes it's just a medical thing or a way to differentiate between something but that doesn't mean just because you didn't have a successful VBAC, like doesn't mean that you failed at birth. I think that right. we, I think that language and word choice is important, but just because you're not one thing doesn't mean that you're its opposite. Does that make sense? Totally. So just because you didn't have a successful VBAC doesn't mean you had a failed birth. I mean, you, you're, you're, badass you're you powered through you went through a lot probably a lot of labor and then you ended up with a repeat cesarean and you have to recover from that and whatever whatever is happening to your birth canal because of that however far along you got in your labor and that is some hard work and that is successful and you are strong I mean you can't have a failed birth you just can't you cannot fail at birth you can't the baby's going to come out some way or another, and that is a success. And so we don't, we don't want you to think that just whenever we use the word success, that it means that anyone that doesn't have that is a failure. It's just a way to differentiate or distinguish between one option and the other, and that other option is not failure in these cases. And I'm really grateful for... Cena that up. Yes. Because it helps us to be more aware too of our of our language and our word choices as well when we keep getting reminded of that. And so one I mean like one day maybe we'll have a better word. I don't know. But let us know like what you think. Drop a comment on our social media pages under this episode's <laughs> image. We want to know like what questions you have, what thoughts you have. All of the questions that we answered, well, most of them anyways, we have information for on our VBAC blog that you can find at the vbaclink.com slash blog and dig in. And then obviously we go way more in depth into a lot of these things in our courses for parents and our courses for doulas. And you can find out information all about those at the vbaclink.com. Megan. Any final words? Yeah. No, I just love it. Like, there's no failing at birth. You just have to be proud of yourself and know that no matter what or how the birth ends up, like, you are powerful and you are incredible and you are a woman of strength and um, we love you. I just want to drop a quick one more thing. Kimberlyn asked, how do you get your husband to agree to a doula? We're not gonna we're not gonna go super far into it because we are out of time. But I just want to let you guys know um, or remind you that we have a blog and there's there's actually a couple questions like the length of pregnancy, like how long in between pregnancies and things like that. Um, so I just wanted to remind you guys of a blog. We have a blog. It's the vbacklink.com/blog. And you guys, we are really amping up these blogs. And if you are not a part of our um, subscriber list, you can easily do that and know when these blogs come out. And know what they are um, because they're really they're really awesome. Like I just have to say, like we're 
we're really like loving these blogs here. And we have one, the link between Cesarean. We have one on how to get your partner on board. We even actually have um, a blog about that, talking about partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mythbusters. Or talking to Dula, partners Dula is what I mean. Dula Mythbusters too. Dula Mythbusters. We have Dula Mythbusters. I mean, seriously, like we have so many, we have shoulder dystocia, big baby. We have how to cope with your, you know, how to cope if labor doesn't go the way you would planned or expected, which we know sometimes that happens, you know, healing from birth trauma, um, how to turn a transverse um, baby, vacuum assisted or um, forceps assisted delivery. I mean, seriously, like, oh, and there was another question is like um, benefits of like what they should do to prepare for their, um, their VBAC, like how to um, prepare their body. And like, we have a blog on feedback, pregnancy, nutrition, and what, you know, things to do prodromal labor. We talked about that a little bit in this episode. We have that versus real labor and what that looks like. I mean, you guys, you'd interrupt your Feedback perspective. We multiple have so cesareans. Many yeah. Like we really want to, to provide a lot of information for you in another way. And so we also have our, our blog. And as Julie mentioned, we have our VBAC course and we go, so it's like our blog with like so much more. Yeah. <laughs> it's very um, meaty. It's, it's really good and with all the resources you need. Um, and so if, you know, you, you love the blog, that I, it's amazing. And we provide a lot of information there. And then um, if you want more, definitely check out our courses. Absolutely. All right. Um, that was a fun yeah, Q&A that's session. That's a wrap. That we got was. Some good stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, if you're not a member of our VBAC link community on Facebook, go ahead and give that a join so that next time we do a Q&A session, you will be able to contribute your question as well. Yeah. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to the vbacklink.com slash share and submit your story. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to the vbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.